Christians are supposed to be Christ-like, just as the name implied from when it was originally used in the first century, right up to our own postmodern world today. It's as simple as WWJD, right? Wrong. Join our show host, teacher, servant leader, and fellow traveler as we journey together in learning how lives daily renewed by God's grace and power can embrace Christian living that counts and makes a difference in a broken world. The title of the book, Lily the Pizza Mouse, and the author, Ricky Kennison. He joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ricky. Hello. Great to have you with us, Ricky. Uh, Lily the Pizza Mouse, a cute, cute story, uh, brings Lily to life in this story, especially the colorful illustrations. And who did those? Uh, I had Author House do them for me. Okay. Well, they did a great job. Uh, So tell us a little bit about Lily and why you created this kind of character. Well, Lily uh, is a little mouse born on Christmas Day in the country and travels to uh, a pizza restaurant in the city where she eats uh, pizza cheese and gets in trouble for eating too much pizza cheese. So the exterminator catches her on Friday night and then takes her for a bumpy ride in dark back of a pickup truck, the exterminator truck. And Lily ends up in the country on Sunday morning, and the exterminator releases her out in the country again, and Lily finds her way back home. Well, I got the story idea from, uh, I had little dry cleaners, and next door to the dry cleaners, there was a pizza restaurant. And that year, the pizza restaurant was overrun with mice. (laughs) And I asked the exterminator why they had so many mice, and she says, well, about every seven years, there's a population increase in mice. So that's how I come up with the idea of making Lily connected to pizza restaurant. So she's born in the woods, far away from the city, and she knows she's a little different. Tell us about her different look. Yeah, she is, she has a little different look. She's got a spot on her ear, and uh, she thinks that spot is real pretty. She sees herself in a, a, a water puddle in the country, and she sees her reflection, and she thinks she's a beautiful little mouse. <laughs> and she's a little bit different, and she kind of likes it. Tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book. Well, I, I've been writing for a hobby, just 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 for something to do, like in the evening or like 3 o'clock in the morning when I wake up with an idea. And I've got lots of writing, so I started picking out some of the writings to see if uh, I could get them published, and maybe some people would read them. Well, Lily, after she grows up in the woods, she's a bit of an adventurer. Yeah, she finds a place in the woods where there's a lot of noise and cars going by, and she tells her mother that, you know, she's found this place for all the noise, and, and she didn't know what they were, the cars were. But her mother tells her not to go there because sometimes when a mouse goes there, they're never seen again. So Lily goes there again, and she crosses the road, and she finds her way to the city. And then she has this incredible experience of smelling something wonderful. 
Yeah, she has this wonderful smell when she finds it. And it's a restaurant, a pizza restaurant, <laughs> yeah. Italian pizza restaurant. The one next door. So she goes, <laughs> yeah, so, so, she, so she goes in there, and what she finds is cheese, wonderful cheese, and she starts eating cheese. But, of course, uh, they see her, don't they? Yeah, they see her, and then she worries that she has to hide from the broom. She sees him kind of sweeping up, and she worries she has to hide from the broom to keep him being swept up. And then uh, the exterminator lady comes in, Miss Ketcher, and she's telling the owner of the pizza restaurant that they've got a new exterminator eliminator, a, a mouse eliminator. It's a machine. You put the cage down with the mouse inside on a conveyor belt, and it goes through the machine, and when the cage comes out, there's no mouse. So when Nilly gets caught by the exterminator, she begs and begs not to be put in the mouse eliminator. And that's why uh, the, the, catch, the Mrs. Ketcher, Miss Ketcher talks to Lily and tells her that she'll think about it. And that's why she gets the bumpy ride in the middle of the night. So she's born on Christmas Day, which is... Obviously pretty unique for mice, right? <laughs> right. Usually they're born in the springtime. Right. but And a wonderful, wonderful day when she's released. What day is that? That's Easter Sunday. She's, catch, she's caught on Saturday night. So the next morning is Easter Sunday. And uh, so that's the reason why the, the, the exterminator releases uh, Lily. She says, the day's Easter Sunday, so I'm releasing you, but please don't go back and eat the pizza cheese anymore. And Lily promises she won't. Well, I guess we'll have to wait for the sequel of, if, if she goes back or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> Any more uh, stories in, in your mind for Lily? Well, no, but I have one about a rat. Oh, okay. I'm working on I'm working I'm working on another story about a rat, a pet rat. So it's kind of the uh, same char- uh, character, but it's a little bit different. Well, there, yeah, there's a lot of difference between a mouse and a rat. I mean, a rat sounds yeah. a, a little bit a little. The rat bit. is supposed to be the, this rat story. Is, she's the rat's going to be kind of magical. Ah, okay. Does he have a name so, yet, or does the rat have a name yet? Yes, it's spotty. It has a spot on it too. It's got a yellow spot on it. Oh, okay. Well, and so, so it's 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 going to be named Spotty. Spotty the Rat. Well, uh, we'll uh-huh. be hearing more about Spotty and the Rat in the future. And we uh, appreciate you being with us on Author Talk. What's the best way to get your book, Lily the Pizza Mouse? From uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com or AuthorHouse.com. Well, thank you so much, Ricky, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you. Stay with us for more Christian Living That Counts, back in a moment. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute defines high cholesterol as a condition in which you have too much cholesterol in your blood. By itself, the condition usually has no signs or symptoms. People who have high blood cholesterol have a greater chance of getting coronary artery disease. 
According to the American Heart Association, more than 120 million Americans over the age of 20 have cholesterol counts that are above a healthy level. Harvard Medical School says that the good news is that cholesterol levels can be controlled, and just by lowering your total cholesterol 10%, you can decrease your heart attack risk by 20 to 30%. Making changes in your eating is important, but including daily exercise is a must. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Visit our Facebook fan page at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts. The title of the book, A Stroke of Love. And the author is Darlene Chisholm. And Darlene joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Darlene. Hello to you, Steve. Well, this is the absolute unexpected. You never know. You have no way of knowing until it happens. This is a stroke that your husband suffered how long ago? April 9th, 2015. So he's just a little over two years. A stroke that, of course, uh, destroys all regular life. A lot of folks turns them upside down so much they can't even recover. But you've had the ability to keep going, and that's the reason you wrote the book, just to share with others? I did. The one thing that I felt the most when we were going through this is that I felt alone. And, excuse me, after we were about a year out, we decided to, to write a book, and I wanted people to know what you go through, how many times we have seen people with strokes, and, and you look at them and you say, well, he looks good, he looks fine, he's back to normal. Right. And on the outside, that, that is pretty true, but on the inside, life is totally different. Totally different. We've had to make some major adjustments. Now, he has been doing what all his life, his occupation? He has been a dairy farmer all of his life. Since this farm was family-owned, it was passed from his father to him. So it's all he has ever done. I, you know, we talked about retirement, and he would say, I'm just not ready yet. And so I knew that it was going to take a catastrophic event to ever change this. And how old is he? He is going to be 73 in November. So April 9th, 2015 is when it happened. Now tell us what was going on that day or that morning, really. You said it was in the morning time and he was just talking to you. We have a routine. He gets up ahead of me, and he would go down and get the wood stove going, and he'd watch the news. He loved watching the news. I quit watching the news probably 20 years ago. So he would come up, and well, I had my coffee, and he'd sit and tell me any funny or amusing stories that he had seen on the news, and that's what was going on. He's telling me this story, and all at once his words began to slur. And I said, what is the matter? And he's like, I don't know. And, and so I jumped up and turned the light on where I could really look at him. And his head is, was cocked off to the side, and his eyes didn't look quite right. And he tried to get up from the chair that he normally has no trouble rising from, and it took him like five tries. And he staggered out into the kitchen, and I have a cupboard. We had a cupboard where we kept his blood pressure pills and his aspirin he took every day, and he's 
going to the corner where they're kept, and he's reaching in midair like he doesn't know what he's reaching for. So I grabbed a chair and put it behind him and made him sit down. So how were you handling all this? At, how were you handling all this at that moment? You know, <clears throat> you you just do it. You're not. Your mind can't comprehend everything at once, and so you are just doing what needs to be done at that moment. I had my elderly mother who lived with us. She just recently passed away, and we had just gotten three of our grandchildren. They were on break from school the night before, so I had these four, three little faces and my mom watching this whole thing, and I just knew that I needed to get him help. I knew what was going on, and my hope was that it was like a mini stroke. So did you take him, or did you call for an ambulance? What, what went on? I called for an ambulance because this was outside my comfort zone as far as trying to transport him. So again, so. it's that type of thing you never know until it happens. No warning. You do not. No warning whatsoever, except all of a sudden that morning, everything changed. Our lives totally changed in just, we like to say now, the beat of a heart. It just, our lives were different. And what was um, the cause? What was the cause? Atrial fibrillation. It's called AFib, and... It's where the top part of your heart, instead of beating, kind of quivers. And in that time, it formed a clot. And when it resumed its normal pattern, it shoved that clot right to his brain. It could have gone anywhere. It could have um, stopped his heart. It could have, there's so many things that it could have done, but it went to his brain and caused a life-threatening stroke. Well, every 40 seconds, on average, someone has a stroke, and 795,000 people, that's a huge number, uh, will have a stroke this year. So what, what are some of the, uh, I mean, what, and, and I'm sure you've learned so much from this. Are there some red flags, some warning signs that you can share a- for other people? Absolutely, and in, in the book, in the back of the book, we list the, the signs of a stroke, so that people who don't know can have a look and maybe save their life or someone else's life. One of the things that you want to watch for is slurring of the words. Um, Another is facial droop, have them smile. And if their smile is not even, both sides of their mouth should turn up. And if their smile is not even or they have face drooping, that's a sign. Um, You can have them raise their arms. Um, to the same height. And a person with a stroke, like with my husband, he couldn't maintain that height. That left arm would start to drop. So you've had to make changes, obviously. He can no longer farm. No, he can farm. He can no longer milk cows. Oh, okay. Yeah, there is a difference. So tell us what you did and what you're doing. We sold the dairy, and it was... um, that was just like being traumatized all over again. How many? How many? Uh, how many head of cows? Uh, dairy cows? We had um, eighty head with young stock, and everything had to go. We um, had we had just bought a bull for breeding who was top of the line, um, and everything had to be moved out. And to see those cows go in that barn empty just devastated him 
we dealt with just from from the losses we dealt with thoughts of suicide and he became so depressed and despondent because nothing was the same he felt that he couldn't do anything so how did you he deal does. with that how did you deal with that when those those moments where he just didn't feel probably like life was worth living anymore for the first year i heard it almost every day that he wished he had died and it it's devastating because i thanked god every day that he, i still had him and that he was alive so it was really hard but i would tell him you know i thank god that you're here there are things we can do he knew that years ago um my brother committed suicide when i was um a young woman and it devastated our family so he remembered that and he remembered the devastation and he said i just couldn't do that to you but it still scares you you wonder is are things ever going to be bad enough that he would change his mind but he hasn't he's he's gotten past that but it was a tough year oh, i'm sure and it's very common with stroke patients um we did have a neighbor who'd had a stroke, and our son had him come talk to him, and he also felt the same way. And he told Phil that, that he also felt that he wanted to die. He wished he had died. He said, wives don't want to hear that. And I said, no, they don't. <laughs> right. Well, people say in reading your story they've never read a more personal story, and you felt very impressed to do it that way. Yes. I wrote it from the heart. I, I wanted people to know that this isn't glossed over. This is what it actually was. As hard as it was to put our personal stuff out there, I felt that people needed to know, especially families, need to know what happens to, to the stroke survivors and their caregivers. They need a help sometimes. They need extra support. So, yep, it was very personal. <laughs> exactly. And so it all started, I guess, from Facebook. Is that right? I mean, this idea of writing a book, uh, you had a lot of material. Actually, the, the Phil came up with the idea when he came home. He said, we should write a book. And it was going to be a joint venture. Phil even named it. The, the name A Stroke of Love came from Phil. He said, that's what I want to call it. And when we got ready to write the book, he was no longer able to remember much from that time. He has um, a real problem with short-term memory, so he can think of things that he wants to put in there, and then within moments, they're gone. He can't remember them. So the task fell to me. I had videotaped throughout his rehab so that, and we posted it on a family Facebook page so that family and friends who were not local could keep up with his progress, and I wasn't constantly on the phone. So I took those, and they were like a daily log of what went on. And that helped me write the book, and I decided to do it as a day-to-day -day so that people got an actual look at our life for that year. I'm sure it was very hard at times to write it because of all the emotions you felt. There were times that it took me days 
to write a certain incident because it brought back so many memories and so much emotion. Our oldest son still to this day has not read the book. He says he starts the first few pages and begins to cry. But as because often he lived it. Oh, exactly. It it very very um, overwhelming, I'm sure, to say the least. But for the writer, as we often hear, doing something like this can be therapeutic. It was very therapeutic. I was able to get all of these thoughts and emotions out and on paper. And this, this book was such a blessing to me. That preceding year when we went through the stroke and the rehab and everything that we went through, I found that I had trouble putting two words together. And it's like, I don't know if this is going to get better. I just My mind didn't want to work. Yet when I sat down to write this book, the words just flowed. The right words. And they helped me to tell our story. I think that God stepped in and helped me put this out there so that it could benefit others. Well, these kinds of experiences, which when we look back on them, we see a whole lot more than when we're going through them because they are these kinds that we learn so much about ourselves. Yes, we do. I found how strong I am. I found that I can deal with the things that life throws at us. You just have to put one foot in front of the other. And that's how I got through it. So that is my faith. So with someone who is just starting this journey with one of their loved ones, as we wrap up our discussion about a stroke of love, uh, Darlene Chisholm, the author. Uh, Darlene, tell us, what would you say to someone? who? What advice would you give them? I would tell them that if they can find a stroke support group, those are very, very great. I got to speak to one, and I found out so many things myself that a lot of what Phil went through, all of the survivors in this group had gone through at one point or another. So this is very helpful. You need to not take things personally. People who suffer stroke don't always understand how their words sound. They can't see that their manner of speaking has changed. And so you have to get a little tougher skin and just let a lot of it go. Um, I found with Phil that I can't give him directions only in single sentences. If I give him a paragraph like, go open the back door and take the garbage out, before you get to the end of that sentence, he's lost. So I have to say, okay, go do this, go do that, and he understands what I want him to do. Most of all, you are not alone. There are so many people out there who are going through the same thing that you are going through. And lean on your faith. Lean on your church. Lean on your family. Do whatever it takes to get you through and it will be okay. It won't be the same, but it'll be okay. Great advice, Darlene. Thank you, and tell us the best way to get your book, A Stroke of Love. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Nobles. You can 
go to my website, which is DarleneChisholm.com, and plop me an email, and I'd love to send you an autographed copy. Author House also carries copies. Well, thank you so much, Darlene, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you for having me, Steve. And could I say one more thing? Please. I would love to thank my husband for always being by my side and for being my greatest supporter in this. And what I said in the beginning of the book is true. You are my yesterday, my today, and my tomorrow. I never want him to feel that he's anything else than just the center of my world. Very well said. Thank you. Thank you, and you guys have a great day. Stay with us for more Christian Living That Counts. Back in a moment. It's words you never heard. Believe it or not, there are times when even I can't think of the right word. The inability to think of a word is called lethologica. Texas Monthly Magazine recently came out with some colorful homespun sayings. Old as dirt and common as cornbread in the Lone Star State. Did you hear about the Texan that could strut sitting down? But he was all hat and no cattle, which means very boastful, but with nothing about which to boast. On top of that, he don't know a widget from a wangdoodle or a diddly squat. His wife was a mighty strong woman. She'd charge hell with a bucket of ice water. She was always telling folks that he was so tight, he could squeeze a nickel till the buffalo screamed. She also said he was famous for calling the hogs all night or snoring. It's words you never I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Christian Perspective on Mental Health, and joining me from North Carolina is our author, Dr. Paul McDowell. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Nice to uh, be able to uh, be on the radio with you today. You have uh, written a book of about 108 pages, and if I understand it correctly, you were uh, working towards your doctorate when this uh, this book uh, came into your uh, mind and came into your uh, desire to write. Tell me a little more about your background. How did you become interested in sharing this this information? Well, like you said, I was working on my doctorate at the time, and my doctor's in Christian counseling. Uh, it sort of opened up my eyes as in my research as to very little information that's out there on the Christian perspective on mental health or anything pertaining to a religion, found very little information out there. And so I stayed on focus with that, and that was my topic for my dissertation, Christian Perspective on Mental Health. Tell me what you are finding or what you would describe as a definition of mental health, because uh, it can carry a, a wide variety of, uh, of inferences. Most definitely. Well, according to society, you know, the, 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 mental, the good mental health or the uh, the mental health that everyone desires to have is that of being able to function in everyday uh, everyday events, everyday goings, and and um, uh, to not be able to do so or have a maladaptive type of behavior and not being able to function fully in um, everyday capacity. 
is generally called uh, mental health issue. Well, anytime there's a distortion in thoughts and uh, maybe um, repetitive uh, thinking and doing the same thing and or either that or deceivement uh, where the individual can not take care of themselves properly. And so, now, does, right. does, does uh, depression fall into that? Because that's also been lumped into this general category. I have a, 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 fact, a relative, close uh, relative, that has had some issues with depression, and when she went to the typical route of getting some assistance, they started loading her up on prescription meds. And uh, from my viewpoint, that seemed like a, a negative approach. What is your understanding, or what did you discover? Well, it just depends on at what level the individual has depression. If it's at a major depression, then most of the time they do prescribe various types of there's numerous medicines they can prescribe, and it just depends on what you're allergic to and what have you. Um, and it assists the individual um, to, to be more active. And then, of course, they recommend some type of therapy along with that. Um and in the therapy process, they generally uh, work with the individual on uh, positive imagery and work on the individual as far as being able to get out and, and move and exercise. Exercise actually helps all of us in our mental health. It seems like a simple thing to do for fitness, but it's also very positive in our mental health aspect also. Now you have approached this from a Christian perspective, and churches in general, from what I have uh, noticed and have been around personally, is that the general consensus there is they need it's a spiritual issue, and they need to have lots of prayer. Have you discovered that, that, that this is a, a factor that can assist in the, uh, in the healing of mental health issues? Uh, most definitely. Even in just the general medical field, doctors have found out that even their regular patients have done better, even physically and in, in, in the healing process, when there's a lot of prayer going on. And there are some doctors that that do, medical doctors that do some, they pray. An individual that actually had a hip replacement recently, I went and prayed for him beforehand, and I talked to him later on that day, and he said, my doctor prayed with me also. Wow. And so prayer, prayer is very positive, number one, but depending on your belief system and your faith, if you really believe in God, I, I just believe that it's always a positive, even in the mental health aspect. But now there are some situations where individuals have uh, bipolar or they have other types of uh, mental health issues that they need assistance with medication because, you know, bipolar is from one extreme to the other. It's from uh, good feeling to that of, you know, having episodes of almost depressive and anger and that kind of thing. In your, in your study, in preparation for uh, sharing the, the information in your book, ha have you discovered anything about race or about uh, environment that might contribute to mental health issues? Well, you know, mental health, it, is, it, it spans all ages, races. It affects all people. Uh, and, and so I, I guess with, sometimes with depression, you do um, notice there's a little bit more 
when, you know, people don't have funds, when, you know, when their lack of abilities to take care of, you know, just general bills and all. And so, but it also happens with those of the rich, you know, they, they get depressed because right. the money does not really satisfy them the way they thought that money would. And, uh, you know, sometimes money, money can be more of a problem than I understand. This is a Christian perspective on mental health. What do you feel is the uh, main message of your book? Uh, What is the underlying message that you think will help in uh, those in maybe Christian ministry or in church work that will assist them in tackling this very difficult question? One one of the things, really the main point, and I, I bring that out, in my book that there there was multiple things that I could have approached um, in the Christian perspective on mental health. But even in my dissertation, my hypothesis was focused on the disconnection, people with mental health issues and the church. And a lot of times that is, that is because of the lack of, lack of knowledge or the training ministers and lay people in dealing with individuals that have mental health issues. I've been working in, uh, I'm a retired law enforcement and also a teacher for years, a criminal justice instructor, and I've trained police officers over the years in mental health and de-escalation. And I find that even with pastors in general, you know, uh, we generally stay to the topic of or uh, putting a topic on the type of care that we give as pastoral care very other than counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I feel that because it's the, it's the lack of training. Lack of training, when you have the proper training, you don't mind saying that you are counseled because you have the confidence and uh, you have the ability and the information, not as a full expert, but as an individual that has resources, and the key to it is having the proper resources where you can direct individuals uh, to get the help that they need. And uh, pastors can't always give the help, but there's resources out there. I think that's a key a key observation. I have been in a situation in a church environment where you know the the resources were not known, and uh, in trying to deal with someone who has complex issues, it's important that you are not uh, confined to just feeling you have to be the solution. You you do need outside help. Is that something that uh, you feel is uh, is missing mostly in the smaller churches, or are the larger larger churches also in in need? It can it can be in both large and smaller churches. It just depends on the pastors had training in mental health, and um, most of the local, I'll say local, uh, but really state, probably from state to state, there are mental health components that's in the state system, and they have training for not just the caregivers, but they have training not just for the uh, providers. Uh, the companies or the therapists and psychologists, but they have training for ministers and lay people and just the general public. And the people a lot of times don't know anything about it. One of the trainings that's just available for everyone is it's called mental health first aid. Mental health first aid kind of gives you just a a general look, kind of a introduction to mental health and um, 
what what all is involved and what happens in the individual with mental health and how serious it is because a lot of times we don't think it's as serious as it is. We say, well, you know, just get better or mm-hmm. um, keep trying and, you know, things will work out. Well, it's a little bit more difficult than that. And so there's, there's plenty of there's plenty of help out there, and that's part of the resources. It's not just knowing your state resources, but also there's various other national, you know, like NAMI, which what they do is they offer assistance with uh, respite and, and other things also. You've given some great details in a very, uh, I would call it a short read, 108 pages of resources. Uh, this is not overly complicated, at least from a technical standpoint. Who, describe for me your your ideal reader. Who is going to benefit the most, or do you feel will benefit the most from reading your book? I think generally everyone, because I try to, it, now mental health can be a complex type of read or just in general, listen to individuals talk about it. But I tried to break it down and keep it simple because I even did a survey when I was uh, doing my dissertation that I included in the book where I surveyed individuals as far as their opinion about mental health. And that's included in the book. And so it gives the opinion of people and how they think and uh, how they approach mental health and then I give feedback as to not if they're wrong or not, but if there's there's maybe a little something different can be done in those situations. And so that's what I do throughout the book. And plus I I attack the stigma of mental health and how no one wants that stigma on them to be able to say that a person's mentally ill or use the the word uh, crazy, you know, that's the word. A lot of times we kind of put mm-hmm. everybody in one bag. And so I talk about all those, those different, uh, those different things within the book. Well, fabulous. You have done a great job on condensing this to an, an easy read of 108 pages or so. The title of the book, again, is The Christian Perspective on Mental Health. My author, Dr. Paul McDowell. Dr. McDowell, where can my listeners get a copy of your read of your book? Okay, Author House is presently is the publisher I, I use. It's a self-publishing company, and you can go through Author House, and you have to put actually the full name, the Christian Perspective on Mental Health, and then look for Paul McDowell. In addition to that, it's on Amazon. It's been available on Amazon since October the 31st. Excellent. Um, individuals can go on Amazon and just they can just put my name in and then they look for that title. Yes, then they can find it at their local bookstore if they uh, if they request it by your last name M C D O W E L L. Doctor McDowell, well, I appreciate your joining me today and sharing your insight. This is also something that will end up on a website eventually, so they can do a search again under Doctor Paul McDowell and find right. this book and uh, other things that may come in the future. Thank. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you so much. My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Join us again for Christian Living That Counts.